would, open your Bibles with me to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. What is the oldest song that you know? The oldest song that you know. That, that can be taken two different ways. What's the song you've known the longest? Another way to see that question is actually do some research and find out what song that you know is actually written longest ago. For many of us, the songs that we've known the longest may come from a, a Sunday service, a Christmas carol, or perhaps a lullaby that you heard when you were a little one. Then a song that you know that's just plain old. I'm not talking like the oldies, like the 50s, like old. Like Amazing Grace, which we'll sing later today, which is written in 1779. Do you think it's something older than that? Or like the doxology, 1674. About a mighty fortress written in 1527. Now, some of you are pretty clever. You remember that we did a study this summer in the Psalms. And those are written 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years ago. Right? Songs that the people of God have been singing for thousands of years. Today, we will look at the oldest song that we have recorded in Scripture. It is here in Exodus 15. It is called the Song of Moses. It's almost 3,500 years old. It's 3,468 years to be exact. And before we cover this, I just want to clarify that, again, we're, we're doing things a little differently. Typically, we'll have more songs at the beginning, and we'll have the message towards the end. But what we'll see today is that the people will recall what God has done. So we look at what God just did. God just delivered his people from the Red Sea. And what is their first response? to God's triumphant victory. What do they do? They sing. They sing. So we're going to do that. We're going to look at what God has done, and then we'll, at the end, we will respond. We will sing. We'll sing to the Lord with a song. And this song is so important that when we get to our scripture reading, in Revelation 15, 3, we will read later in our scripture that in Revelation 15, 3, those that conquer the beast rise and sing the song of Moses. This song. The song of Moses, right here. This song has what we like to call staying power. Almost 3,500 years old, and we'll be singing in the future. When the beast is taken down, God's enemies triumph again. They're like, you know what? I know an oldie and a goodie. Let's pull this one back out and sing this together again. And we'll do this in the future. We will sing the song of Moses. So what's so great about this song? So I have over 25 plus descriptions I'd like to point out to you. And we'll do that. I'm just, we won't go bullet by bullet. We'll just, what I would like you to do is look at, as we're walking through Exodus 15, I want you to try to look at descriptions of God, his character, things that describe who he is, and then his action, things that he has done. There are dozens in here. So let's walk through some of these. First, we see in 15, 1 through 5, that God has triumphed gloriously. God triumphs gloriously. Look at 15, 1. They're Moses and the people of Israel. So the Egyptian bodies are washing up on the shore. they catching their breath, and they're just awestruck at what God has done. And somehow they figure out in this next day how to lead the people in this song. Most of the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The people sing the song. They give the reason for this song in verse number one. He has triumphed gloriously. Who has triumphed? God did. In this short statement, they acknowledge what part did they have in the victory. So for those of you that were at home yesterday, or those that you'll do this today, and you'll go home and you'll watch your favorite team play football. Maybe you did that yesterday, maybe you did it today, maybe your cup of tea is the World Cup coming up. You want to sit down and you want to watch your team play. How much did you contribute to that victory? Yield gute. Now you like to think that you did something. You like to join in the victory. And you may put something on social media or tell your buddy at the water cooler. Do you see we won yesterday? And they may allow that. You may have a snarky person going, we, huh? <laughs> I didn't recall seeing you on the floor or on the pitch or on the field. What, how did you help them win? Well, you know what I mean. So, <laughs> so you said they're doing nothing. But we like to claim the victory, and the people of Israel are claiming, we did jack squat. That was the path to victory. Remember what Moses told them before the Red Sea? All you have to do, you want to see victory? All you have to do is shut your yap. Be silent and watch what God will do. Apparently, they took his advice. Because we get to the end of this incident. The Red Sea comes down and God destroys the Egyptians. And they realize that actually worked. We just kept our mouth shut, and God triumphed gloriously. So what does this mean for God's people? They just said he chucked Egyptians in, into the sea. Well, they declare, verse 2, that this means more than just a one-time victory. Look at verse number 2. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. They proclaim God's triumphant victory. They sing of how he triumphed gloriously, and now there's this personal belief. Back in 1431, right after the Red Sea came back down on the Egyptians, Moses writes in 1431, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. They believe this became personal. There has to be at some point in time in your life, friend, if you're here and you've never personally accepted Jesus Christ for our Savior, there has to be a time where, where it's, it's your faith. It has to become yours. Not just your father's faith. Not just what your grandparents believed or that, you know, we had a pastor somewhere down the line. I'm sure that does something good for me in the end. No. You have to personally believe. So 1431, they believed, and now you see this belief coming to fruition when they're saying, he is my strength, my song, he's my salvation, he is my God, friend, is he yours? The legacy of faith we see. Faith in Jehovah can be passed on. We cannot save our children, but we can do everything we can to tell them about who he is. We can write it on our doorpost. We can put it on 
boxes on our head if you want to. Put it somewhere. Let them know when they rise up and when they lay down. This is our God forever and ever. Verse number three, the Lord is a warrior. He alone is needed to defeat the enemy. There's no God plus in the equation. It just, God is better than put anything else on that side. He's all that is needed. Look at verse 4. Look what he did. Pharaoh's chariots, his whole host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. How is this possible? How can God do this? Well, he's powerful. He's omnipotent. He holds all power, and we're, we're going to see this phraseology speaking of his right hand or his arm. Look at this in 15.6 and down. And we see in our, our next point here, that'll point this out, that God's powerful shattering of his enemies. Look at 6 through 13. This is different descriptions that they say of God's power. Verse number 6, he's glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. Verse 11, no one's like God, for Jehovah God is awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Verse 12, when God stretches out his right hand, the earth swallowed them up. He's omnipotent. And though God is this powerful and this mighty, the enemy, the Egyptians, thought, you know what, I think we think we can take him on. We have gods too. So we're going to try to take him on. And we saw in 12.12 that God did judgment on the no-gods of Egypt. But Pharaoh still has this sense of we, we can take him on. We can go face to face. Remember Pharaoh's first question to Moses when Moses says, let my people go that they may serve the Lord. And what does Pharaoh say in, in five chapter 5, verse number 2? Who is Jehovah? That I should obey him. I hope you have a pen and paper <laughs> because, Pharaoh, you're, you're about ready to get a lesson. Write this down. He is the great I am. He is the only God. There is none like him. He is omnipotent. In 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 9, we see the enemy in pride believed that they would win the battle. Why does that look at verse number 9? They believed their hand, their strong arm, was more powerful than the Lord's. We'll arm wrestle him. We'll take him on. Come to find out they're impotent, powerless. They're washing up on the seashore. They're dead. So the people sing, God has delivered us. And not only has God delivered them, but his, his right hand did more than just deliver them. Verse 13, you have led your people. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God did not just deliver them and then say, you're on your own. I saved you. Here's the desert. Go fend for yourself. No, he, he lovingly guides them. He leads them, those that he redeems. So how did God lead them? With a whip, with chains, like they had their taskmaster in Egypt? He leads them, it says, by his steadfast love. He guides them with his power, by the strength. He guides them by his strength. God leads them and guides them in love and power. What more do you want from a God? 
Have you ever been on a trail and you had to follow a guide? There's a couple of things that you want in a guide. You want to lead you want them to lead you in a loving way. You ever had a guide that you thought, I don't think he knows where he doesn't think they know where they're going. So when we were in Guam, we would take they called boonie hikes and you go out into the jungle. And we had a guide, John John, love John John. He's great. Great husband, great father. Do not follow him on a trail. He's out there with his machete. This is pitch black at night. We're going to go down, you know, the sun's out, the moon's out, and we're just going to go down. We're going to go to this little place, and hey, it's great. It's only about a mile and a half in. It's going to, and he's out there swinging. And I'm in the back shaking my head. What on earth am I doing here? All of a sudden, John John disappears. We don't know where he went. He knew the trail like the back of his hand. And yet he fell in a hole and we couldn't find him. True story. On top of that, there are things in the jungle. I don't know if you know this about Guam. There's a snake problem out there. I don't like snakes. Snakes are bad. Best snake? It's a dead snake. I like snakes. I don't want to think I may get attacked. So you want somebody to lovingly lead you on the best path that also has the power to take on any enemy that comes your way. This is the leadership of our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in hard pastures, difficult. He leads me besides rocky waters. Makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is, this is our God. He lovingly leads. He lovingly guides. As we saw last week, sometimes where he leads, you think this isn't loving. Right? He put them into a trap so he could show them who, how, how powerful he is, but he still cared for them the entire time. God lovingly leads. He lovingly guides. He, how did he guide them? With steadfast love and power. Whom does he lead? Those that he has redeemed. Where does God lead? Did you see this in verse number 13? Where does God lead his people? Where else would you want God to lead you? To what location? To what spot? To what place? God leads them to himself. What better source? What better place to be? He shatters his enemies, he leads his own. We see in our next point here that God not only terrifies, not only his power not only shatters his enemy, but he also terrifies his enemy. Look at verse 14 through 16. The people have heard, they tremble. Hangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Three different nations are listed, and then all the nations of Canaan are combined. What are they doing? They're shaking in their boots. They're trembling. Why? Look at verse 16. Terror and dread has fallen upon them. Why? Because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, until the Lord 
so the Lord brings them through. These people are in constant terror because of who God is, who their God is, Jehovah God. What did the Egyptians say when they were in the middle of those two walls of water? God is fighting for them. Pull back, but it's too late. Terror and dread fall upon the surrounding nations because of the greatness, the power of God's arm. Next we see in verse 17 through 18 that God's power enables him to fulfill his promises. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Back in Genesis 15, God promised Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. But it wouldn't all come in one night. If you remember back in Genesis 15, God promised a land, but he said, but your people are first going to have to be sojourners in the land, and they will be there for 400 years. And I will lead them out with great possession. To where? To the land that I promised you. Let's call it the promised land. He's going to fulfill this promise. God keeps his promise. He keeps his word. His power enables him to do this. If God was not omnipotent, he could not make these covenants. But because he is omnipotent, he can make these promises because he has the power to keep them. Don't we tell our children, don't make a promise that you cannot keep? And even you and I, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, there are times where we make a promise that we can keep, but sometimes we forget. Sometimes we blow it. But God cannot lie. God does not forget. God has the power to accomplish what he says he will do, he will do. So as the people sang to God, they recalled how they were just saved. And as they recall what God has done for them, their faith was bolstered because they realized who God is, what he's done. They recall the promises of God to Abraham. And they believe he's going to fulfill it. So they believe we will get to this land. They're not there yet. But we will get to this land based on the promise of God because God is trustworthy. They confessed as they sang that they believed God would bring them in the land. And we see later he did. And we recall God's powerful act of creation in this text. Look at this in verse 17, which with this phrase like, which you have made, which your hands have established. God is an omnipotent creator. He has the power to create, but the power to create isn't as, isn't as much the focus as it's his power to keep his promise, his power to keep his people, and his power to keep his throne. Look at the very end of verse 17. Sorry, verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. He will reign forever. No power, no angel, no demon, no man, no king, not even Satan will thwart our omnipotent sovereign Lord. The beast that rises up in Revelation will not do it. He will be cast down. He will lose. And what will the people do? They'll rise up and sing the song of Moses. And if you read, continue reading 15, Revelation 15 and the song of the Lamb. Sing them both. Two hymns you'll need to add to your repertoire. They sing to the Lord. He will rule forever. Next, we see God triumphs gloriously. Where we started, that's where we'll end. Look at verse number 19. We're going to have a little recap here in verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horses, horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And you're like, well, I know this. Well, again, recap, verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and the women all went after, singing with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, verse 21, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. These, this phrase that God has triumphed gloriously, this is the bookend of this song. It starts and how this ends. This is setting up this whole section. This book ends this section. God has triumphed victoriously. If you want a summary of the song of Moses, God has triumphed victoriously. That's who he is. That's what he does. In verse number 20, I don't know if you saw that. Some of you did. You kind of struggle with it. Verse number 20 is, is, is what we call a, a Baptist heart attack. We're all going to take some deep breaths. I'm going to read this one out loud. So some of you like that we go verse by verse. You may not, but we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it. And we're, we okay? It doesn't matter what translation you have either. Miriam's still a prophetess. You can believe she's still a prophetess and still be complimentary, but you can, and then and then it gets worse for some. Let's let's read verse number twenty again. We're okay. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. Oh no. And all the women, sweet mercy, went out after her with tambourines. And the D word. And dancing. I don't know if you can say that in a church. Can you imagine? We had Miss Corey and, and Aaliyah up here today. If during the songs they're going to do later, they just grab a tambourine, and they start running around, and all the ladies start following, dancing, and singing, some of you would be tempted to leave. Would you not? That's no, that's no place for that. Now, some of you rightly, now let's stop right here, because some of you rightly say, this is Old Testament. This is Old Testament. This is Jewish praise. And I would say, amen. You are right. But then you're claiming to be under grace. Is that correct? So your fervor, now that you know that you're under the grace of of the blood of the Lamb should diminish? Your worship of Him should be more stiff, more dull, quieter? Are you kidding me? Do you believe you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Then what keeps you from praising Him in an adequate response? I'm not talking about handling snakes and walking on top of the chairs and trying to be a distraction that everybody look at me. We're not talking about that. Just talking about unprovoked by anybody else other than the greatness of God. I saw what he did. What other response do I have but to <laughs> grab the tambourine? Listen, somebody join me. He is worthy. He is glorious. Stand and sing. Like this, with your hands as tight to your side as you can, with as low a voice as possible, in case someone possibly might hear you. 
God help us, Christians. God help us. Are you not under grace? Do you not have more to praise the Lord for than the Jews did here at this point in time in their life? They saw shadows of what was to come. They saw the little lamb that they were holding, and it took their place. But they were looking forward to the one that would finally take their place. And no more covering, but a final atonement. The great substitution. And now we live under that grace. Can you sit? Can you be silent? God has triumphed gloriously. He has triumphed. May we respond adequately. May we respond adequately. So if you want a summary of the Song of Moses, it is this. God has triumphed gloriously. Now before, and if you're ready to sing praise, I hope that you are, before we get there, let me first call you to lament. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why should we lament? Why should we repent? Look at verse 22. When Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur, they went three days. This is key, three days. Three days in the wilderness, they found no water. When they came to Marah, they, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. Three days without water. They had just seen what God had done at the Red Sea. They had just seen what God had done with the ten plagues. Now they encounter another problem, no water. What is their response? Verse 24. And the people grumbled. They grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Moses, verse 25, cries to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. The Lord made for them a statute and rule, and there he tested them. God brought them to a place where they could not provide for themselves. Why? Why? Why did God bring them to a place where they could not provide for themselves? What lesson? What test? Well, look up. I can provide for you. Look up. Have you not seen what I've done? Then God gives a conditional promise, verse 26 and 27. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to the commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. He just healed the water. He's letting him know, I can heal you. Then they came to Elam where they, there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. They finished singing about his great deliverance, his power to shatter his enemies, his power to terrify his enemies, his power that enables him to keep his promise. The reminder that he triumphs gloriously, and in the space of three days, three days, these confessional believers have lost and seemingly forgot who God is what he's done. As I mentioned, I started the study. Can you, can you imagine sitting in here today, seeing how great God is, 
We're going to sing at the end. We're going to proclaim how great is our God in this first song after this. And we're going to sing out how great he is. Can you imagine that by Wednesday you might doubt that God sees and knows and cares? How fickle we are. I mean, we like to give it to the Old Testament Jews and say, oh, man, what a bunch of fools they are, Christians. Let's be honest. Some of us don't make it to Wednesday. You may get some of the worst news of your life in the next 12 hours. You can make one of the worst decisions of your life in the next 24. And you may forget. You may forget who he is and what he's done. Our nation was surprised at the attacks that happened here at UVA with the shooting and killing of at least three of those football players. And if you saw part of that service, guess what song they sang? The goodness of God. At UVA. How can God be good with such crazy things happening? I love your voice. You've led me through the fire. All my days I've been held by your hand from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head. I will sing of the goodness of God. His goodness, when we stray, what does it do? It comes running after me, Christian. Join me in lament. God, forgive me. God, I've repaired. Forgive me for such a fickle, diabolical heart. Help me to follow you. Thankfully, Christian, he is a God of grace. He sent grace upon grace for our sinfulness, our waywardness, our forgetfulness will not thwart his power. Our sinfulness cannot extinguish his grace or mercy. But where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So before we sing, let's think through what this means. First, friend, if you're here earlier in 52, we saw the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. I asked earlier, do you know him? Is the Lord your salvation? Is he your God? It may be that God is the God of your father and mother, but is he yours? Little one, your parents may be faithfully following Jesus, but it has to be your faith. You have to trust Christ, Christian. Will you place your faith and trust in him? When the Israelites saw God's salvation at the Red Sea in 1431, they believed, will you believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he did come, he did die, he did rise, he did ascend down high, and he still lives today to intercede on behalf of his own. Will you place your faith in Jesus? If so, you can do so by, we go through this week after week, the ABCs, you admit a, that Jesus is the Christ. Believe. Admit that you are a sinner. Sorry, B, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and C, call on his name. Whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you do that? If you have questions how you can do that, see a Christian friend. See myself. We'd love to walk, that, walk you through that. Second, for those that are claiming to be a Christian, back in verse 13, we saw who God led. He led the people he redeemed. How he led them with steadfast love. 
and by his strength and where he led them. He led them to himself at his holy abode. So I guess the question for you and I goes along with this. Do you believe that God is leading you right now? Do you believe right now that he loves you? Right now, do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe right now that he has the power to deliver you no matter what comes your way? By faith, may you trust God and trust the path he's put you on. Next, we saw the faith and hope of God's people as they proclaim verse 17 and 18 that God will bring them into the land. Christian, are you living with the hope that God will keep his promises to you? Are you living with the hope that God will keep his promises to you? That he will bring you safely home. That he that began a good work will complete it, Christian, by faith. Trust God has the power to keep his promises. He is faithful. He will do it. Third, Christian, will you join me in praising God this week? Go back through his text and read through all the different descriptions of who God is and what he's done. Today we learn that God has triumphed gloriously. He is my strength. He is my song. He is salvation. We can know that God can be my God, that he is a man of war, that the Lord, Jehovah, is his name. We should praise him for his glorious power, for shattering the enemy, for being great in majesty, for overwhelming the enemy. We should praise God that there's no one like him, for he's majestic in holiness, in awesome and glorious deeds. He does wonders. Give him glory because he leads us by his steadfast love. He redeems his people. He purchases them and guides them with his power and strength. Shout out, for he will reign forever and ever, and no one can overthrow him. Praise him, for he has triumphed gloriously. Lastly, do you recall how the ladies worshipped? Do you recall how at the beginning, verse 1, the entire nation worshipped? Have you ever met a Christian that says that singing isn't their thing? It's always been befuddling to me. I don't have a voice like so-and-so. Who cares? Who cares? You're going to let your voice stop you from giving praise to God? It's a natural response of his people. When they see him work, they will sing to him. Don't believe me? Go read Isaiah 6. What do the angels do in his presence? But sing about how holy he is. Read Revelation 4. When the elders fall down around the Lamb, and they start casting crowns, and they start singing the song of the Lamb. We sing to the Lord. If you know him, sing loud. Sing proud. That this God is your God forever and ever. Sing. Have you ever met a Christian that won't sing the song because it's not their style? Sweet mercy. <laughs> Just a guess. When you and I get to heaven, your playlist will not be what we sing. Do you understand this? When you get to heaven, 
It will not be your playlist. So relax. Sing to the Lamb. Well, I don't know that one. Then get to know it. Get to know it. Any song that will allow you to sing about the Lamb, sing it. Get to know it. Put your petty preference aside. He is greater than you. He is greater than your playlist. Can you imagine somebody in heaven going, I don't like this one. This doesn't have the organ. Or this does have the organ. Or this has this. And this doesn't have, that has, (gasps) they play drums. They had tambourines. Christian, I beg you, see your God to be greater than your problems. Sing to him, for he has triumphed gloriously. Have you seen evidence of this in your own life? Has he taken the one that was blind in darkness and made them his own? Has he guided you like a loving shepherd? Has he promised to never leave you or forsake you? Then sing. Let people try to shut you up. What did Paul and Silas do in the jail? It's so unnerving. They sang. How are they singing at the time like this? Because God has triumphed gloriously. Put the pettiness aside. Sing to the Lord. He's better than you and I can imagine. But let's try. Let's try. And give it all we got. Let's bow for what a prayer is to be. Let's take 30 seconds, and then we're going to sing. time and quiet your heart. Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me change? Perhaps it's lament and repent. Do so, but Christian, come right back to praise. What a God we have. pray, God, you are great and greatly to be praised. Would you allow us with our meager gifts and abilities to give you the praise you deserve right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing with us.